Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Someone Like You, recorded by Emmylou Harris and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Dickie Lee. Dickie's early artist career found him scoring pop and R&B hits in the 1960s with songs such as Patches and the self-penned single I Saw Linda Yesterday. He went on to record 17 top 40 country singles, including the major hits 9,999,999 Tears and Rocky, which hit number one in 1975. Lee is best known, however, for writing She Thinks I Still Care, which George Jones took to the number one spot on the Billboard Country Chart in 1962. The song has since been covered by artists as diverse as Elvis Presley, Little Willie John, Connie Francis, Merle Haggard, James Taylor, Harry Connick Jr., Cher, Anne Murray, and Garth Brooks. He has written an additional half-dozen number one country hits, including I'll Be Leaving Alone for Charlie Pride, You're the First Time I've Thought About Leaving for Reba McIntyre, Let's Fall to Pieces Together for George Strait, and In a Different Light for Doug Stone. His long list of additional hits includes Tracy Bird's Keeper of the Stars, which won the Academy of Country Music's Song of the Year Award. Other artists who've recorded his songs include Ernest Tubb, Eddie Arnold, Marty Robbins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Conway Twitty, Don Williams, Glenn Campbell, John Fogarty, Waylon Jennings, Joe Cocker, Vince Gill, Patty Loveless, Jamie Johnson, and Keb Moe. Ten of Dickey's songs have earned BMI Performance Awards, and he was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1995. Well, today we're going to talk about one of the great you know, classic writers in, in the country genre. One of the but, best, yeah. Uh, you know, kind of moving on for a moment to a, a different genre, uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out the passing of Chris Cornell this yeah, month. Yeah, man. The lead singer and and main songwriter and creative force behind the band Soundgarden, who was a, a, a big part of our upbringing and yeah. the, the generation of music that we kind of fell in love with as high schoolers and just just crazy. Yeah, an amazing vocalist and songwriter. It's 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 really a great loss uh, to the music world. I, you know, I'm glad we got to go yeah. uh, see him recently, just back in the fall, uh, doing the anniversary shows with Temple of the Dog, one of his, his many side projects. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a shame when, when you see that kind of, uh, talent and, you know, you, you can kind of take for granted some of these performers and writers that they'll just kind of always be around. But yeah. in the last couple of years, man, it seems like we've really seen uh, a lot of legendary, um, talent slipping away and it's, yeah. uh, bums me out. And I think it just sort of underscores part of why we do this, you know, to, to collect stories and yeah. to, to get perspectives. Um, you know, cause the. Our songwriters are precious. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Our, our artists. National resource. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a real heartfelt uh, farewell to him. And um, Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry to see that this past month. Yeah. Well, we've got a little, uh, a little business to take care of before we get into uh, a considerably 
cheerier topic yeah. <laughs> than the passing of, uh, of a great artist and, and having a great uh, conversation with Dickie Lee. But we've, uh, as usual, we've, we've got some business to take care of. We uh, have been doing contests recently. And um, as you know, we are giving away a signed copy of Billy Vera's yep. uh, memoir, Harlem to Hollywood. Billy, uh, of course, featured on our last episode. And boy, if you haven't heard that one yet, yeah, great one. go back and listen to it. I mean, whether you're really familiar with Billy or not, you will love the episode. I mean, great stories, great stories, great guy. But uh, anyway, and, and a great book. So we want to also yeah. encourage you, even if you don't turn out to be the winner of this book, I encourage you to check it out. But um, so, Paul, I've written down the names of the entrants. I've made it simple this time. Please. No, uh, not writing it on ping pong balls uh, or playing cards, not pulling out of a magic hat. I just simply have some pieces of paper here that I've written the names on. So I don't feel like you care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought maybe you were losing patience with my elaborate, uh, you know, drawing. But anyway, hunt. I'm going to I'm going to hold these out and you just pick a piece of paper there and uh, and. Ken Tai. Nice. Ken Tai, T-Y-E, is our winner this week. Excellent. Congratulations, Ken. I will uh, contact you via email and uh, figure out how to get that book to you, and um, I know you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, all part of our quest to be known as the most generous podcast out there. Absolutely. Just what a couple, away. a couple great guys. We really are. You know, I think it was actually, in the words of the great Jimmy Webb a few episodes back, he said, you're a couple of swell guys. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. High praise, man. Yep. Couple of swell guys. Jimmy Webb. Must be true. Yeah. I think Dickie Lee thought we were swell guys, too. Uh, man, you know what? I love talking to Dickie Lee. What fun. a nice guy. I mean, just, uh, I mean, the guy recorded at Sun Records. He wrote, She Thinks I Still Care. Awesome. He's writing hits, like, for decades. I mean, the guy's like yeah. an unstoppable force. And hits as an artist yeah. and as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. He's done it all. So, um, yeah, well enough about us. Why don't we jump in and, <laughs> uh, and let Dickie Lee, uh, let all our listeners know what an awesome guy he is. Let's hear it. Dickie, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks guys. Good to be here. Now you grew up on a farm outside of Memphis, Tennessee, in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, what music first caught your ear as a kid? Oh boy, I was well. The first music that really got to me was a uh, country. Hmm. I used to. I'd even listen to the Grand Ole Opry. You, we'd get it in there really powerful on Saturday nights. Yeah. And I had a, I, uh, I listened to the radio a lot. And there was a there was a disc jockey in Memphis by the name of Sleepy Eyed John who had hmm. a had a big country show, and I, I just, for some reason, I got hooked up on that stuff and uh, listened to him all the time and, and you know, just started uh, started learning to play guitar in junior high school and hmm. learning all these country songs. Yeah, yeah. Who were some of your favorite artists? Well, i tell you what, it was, uh, I guess Webb Pierce was my favorite hmm. country artist. Yeah. And uh, I loved Farron Young, I loved uh, Hank Snow, I loved Hank Thompson, that's a good solid list right there. <laughs> There's yeah. a bunch more. In yeah. fact, I used to uh, when I was in high school, I had a buddy, and we would we he, he loved country music too, and we'd go on uh, football trips, and and uh, on the football bus, we'd be singing our country songs, and <laughs> everybody would shout us down, make us stop. <laughs> right. Now. You know, you talked about you were already kind of starting to fiddle around on the guitar. Did you recall when you first began to actually try your hand at writing your own songs? Yeah, it was in junior high school. Uh, hmm. I, I remember I bought my first guitar. When I was in junior high school, there was a guy, uh, my high school, he was a, he was about, 
well, I guess he was a senior, junior and a senior those couple of years. Mm-hmm. I, re- I even remember his name. His name was David Ransom. He was a, you know, he was kind of Mr. Everything in, in high school. He was a great athlete, uh, great, great football player, and, and he played. He had a guitar, and on on uh, Fridays at our assemblies, a lot of times they would, he would he would play. You know, and I thought, man, that is so cool. You know, yeah, like yeah. I want to, I want to. I want to play football and learn to play the guitar. That's the way you get girls. <laughs> that's right. Right, right, and it still is. But anyway, I, you know that's that's kind of really what what inspired me. I guess yeah. that yeah. first guy, you know. Yeah. Now this, uh, you know, you can correct me if this is true or not, but I've heard you say that you actually got kicked out of the high school chorus. What happened there? I did. I remember. Uh, <laughs> well, because I was a I was a clown. Um, I was in uh, high school chorus, and I remember. Uh, we we had our class out in this. It was it was almost like a like a living room. You know, we had we had couches and chairs and everything. Mm. And for some reason, I remember I got in the uh, I got under the cushions of a couch <laughs> and stayed there for about the the whole period. And, the, and the, the teacher caught me right at the end, and that was it. He didn't like that kind of stuff. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny myself. Yeah. Um. Well, one of the most influential DJs in the history of, of Memphis, or really in the history of anywhere, um, was Dewey Phillips, who was, of course, this highly energetic, like, quick guy who would have this frantic style playing country and R&B records on his Red Hot and Blue show. And, you know, today Dewey is, is probably most remembered as the guy who who broadcast Elvis's That's All Right Mama in 1954 and then got Elvis on the air that night for his his first interview. Um, right. And I understand that that Dewey had a hand in, in your musical development kind of toward the end of your high school career. Um, tell us how you met him and, and in what ways he kind of fostered your talent. Yeah, I would say he's the guy that really got me into professional music. Uh-huh. Uh, he's on the air five nights, a, six nights a week, I think, from... Uh, about six, about nine to midnight. Yeah, <clears throat> and all the all the kids used to listen to him. Hmm. He should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, ho- I hope yeah. he is one day. He w- he was almost illiterate. Uh, he didn't have an education, but he would he would get on the air and he would talk over all the records, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, mess them all up, and uh, they just you know they they didn't know what to do with him. Right. Well, and it shows the difference in in kind of how influential a DJ could be in society at that time versus now. There's kind of a little bit more of a disposable aspect to the people we hear on the radio. He, what what really hurt him was uh, top forty radio when you started having to read script and do all that stuff. Right. He couldn't yeah. read it. Yeah. Wow. And uh that yeah. kind of that kind of started slowing him down so they just kind of eased him out but he's the you know as personally he's the he's the greatest rock and roll disc jockey I ever heard. I actually I went up there one night and I waited until he came off the air after the show was over and I just I had written a couple of songs and uh I just stopped him coming out and asked him if he would listen to them hmm. and I just happened to have my guitar with me. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he and he said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll listen." So he takes me back in, and I'll play a couple of these songs. And uh, he says, "You know, those are pretty good." He said, "He says, have you got a band?" I said, "No, sir." He said, "Why don't you put a band together?" He said, "You get a band together and come back and, and call me." Yeah. So I said, "Okay." So you know, I, I started fooling around. I got a few kids that played. Uh, I was I was just going. I was I was just going to Memphis State. I, was, I just started. Uh, and I got I got uh, 
in fact, I got a, a guy that played basketball at Memphis State back then when they were, they were really good, and uh, got a couple of guys from a school. It's, it's Rose, Rhodes College today. It was, it was called Southwestern back then. Got, right. got a, a couple of few guys over there that sang with me. One of them uh, was Alan Reynolds, who turned out to be the producer of all the Garth That's Brooks right. records. Yeah, today. yeah. Wow. Anyway, I got this little group together, and we started practicing, and... Uh, so I, I I called him back and they set up a time and we came up there and they listened he, he listened to us he had a guy by the name of Claude Cockle that worked with him kind of a kind of a cohort and right. uh, they recorded us right there in WHBQ Studios on these two songs one was called Dream Boy and one was called Stay True Baby. <laughs> Dewey knew he ran into some guy. He just kind of had a little fly-by-night label. It was called Tampa Records, T-A-M-P-A. And he got us on the label. Uh, I don't think I ever even had a contract. (laughs) Anyway, they they put the song out. And I I remember the song was released about the same time that that, uh, Elvis's uh, All Shook Up was released. And I remember on the local charts, uh, they they went straight up the charts together. And I I was always... one slot behind Elvis, all the way to number one. I got to number two, and never got to number one. Right, and, right. Uh, but but our record was a, uh, it was like a two sided hit. They they listed both sides, yeah. and uh, it was a it was a real territorial mid south hit. But it it really didn't get out of get out of the mid south. Right. Well, you know, uh, it's it's interesting to me that that on the forty five on the label for Dream Boy. And uh, and for Stay True Baby, that both songs are credited. Uh, the writer credit is is Dick Lipscomb, which is which is your real name, but the the artist name is of course Dickie Lee. How did you end up adopting the stage name Dickie Lee? I don't even remember how he came up with the name Lee. There, there's no family name in there. Hmm. Uh, people always ask me if I'm kin to Brenda Lee and all this stuff, and I finally just I don't go to all the trouble of telling them that's not my <laughs> real name. In fact, it is my legal name today because I had it legally changed oh, really? and the. And the reason I did later on, uh, when I had when I recorded Patches and we had a big hit with that, we got it. We we got a nuisance suit uh, from a, there was this guy in Philadelphia by the name of Dick Lee who had a nightclub and uh, I think he was on some record label up there or something. But right. he sued me for using his name. Oh gosh! <laughs> so my manager said, "Well, we'll take care of that." So I had my name legally changed. Wow. I, I, didn't, I didn't even tell my parents. Wow. <laughs> had, it le- had it legally changed before they really knew about it. I don't remember how we did that exactly, yeah. but, but, but we did. So that solved that problem. You had a lot of nerve making that guy all popular. Oh, yeah, I know it. I, know it. I, never, I never had the pleasure of, or I never had the displeasure of meeting him. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Elvis, and I'm thinking, you know, being a Memphis-based musician in that era and being involved with Dewey Phillips, you must have crossed paths with Elvis. Yeah, I got to meet him, and we, we did a show. Uh, Wink Martindale, I'm sure you know who that oh, is. Oh, yeah, sure. And, uh, and Dewey put a show on out at this place called the Rainbow Terrace Room. It had a big big dance floor, uh, big skating rink, and we did a big show out there when, this, when my record was right at the top. Hmm. And I was leaving that night after the show, and... This guy walks up to me and says, "Hey, Elvis wants to meet you." And I said, "What are you talking about?" And, uh, he said, "Well, he's out here in his car, you know." So he was parked out by the curb, you know. And and uh, so I went over and he talked to me. He said, "Hey, I really like your record." And I said, "Well, guys, that's great. I like your record too." <laughs> right. And uh, anyway, we 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 talked a little while, and he invited me out to his house. So uh, I 
I, I went out there a few times and, and got to know him pretty well and uh just you know just just really enjoyed him he was he was really great to me i used to take girls all these girls who want to go out to elvis's with me only they'd never want to leave with me <laughs> <laughs> that's funny uh, this is before things got really really crazy for him i'm guessing uh, what what year was this left rc uh, he just left sun he okay. was on rca at the time and uh so when, when i went to sun he, w- he was not there uh in fact I, I went to sun after dewey got me on sun with sam phillips after the the dream boy record okay right, on tampa right. yeah they uh, of course launched elvis's career but but also you know sam phillips who who ran sun had signed johnny cash and jerry lee lewis carl perkins roy orbison i mean it's like everybody who was the the architect of of rock and roll passed through through Sun Records. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, you know, it, it was it was really uh, it, it was quite an experience, and mm-hmm. and uh, for me, it was like a magic time. You know, I was I was there around all those guys, and uh, I remember Charlie Rich played on a few of my record sessions. In fact, wow. you know, all those guys were were musicians, and different different artists would play on different people's records. Oh, uh, it was right. just kind of. It was kind of kind of fun. Billy Lee Riley had a had a great band and could uh, use a lot of his guys sometime. But uh, I had I had a couple of records on Sun and we cut about six sides and and they were they were they were mediocre. You know they got they were okay around Memphis, but they never really got outside of Memphis either. Yeah, as yeah. far as the U.S., but they got to Europe and uh, the, the the great thing about that as far as my career. It didn't matter whether you had a hit or not. If you were on Sun Records in Europe, you were a hero. Interesting. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But that, that you know, that did a... Probably having no real hits on Sun probably did me more good in a lot of areas than, than having real hits on other labels, you know? <laughs> wow. That's interesting. <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 really crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and Sam was really neat to me. And, you know, when, I, when he first... when. Son first saw me. I mean, Sam didn't really, really want to sign me. Dewey made him. Wow, <laughs> interesting. But he was because I wasn't his type of artist. You know, he. I remember he 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 told me later. He said, you know, he said you were you were one of those damn Philadelphia teenage idol types, doo wop stuff and all. Right, and uh, right. but anyway, he 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 was really great to me, and, and he told me he told me later on that uh, he said, you know, he said. When you first came here, he said you you were an imitator, and he said I I kind of put up with you. He said I thought you <laughs> might be some potential there, but he said you know you he said you finally found yourself, and he said I'm really proud of you. And I thought uh-huh. to me that was a great compliment. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. cool. Well, you know your your second son single was "Fool, Fool, Fool," a song that you uh, wrote with with Alan Reynolds. both members of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. You mentioned that, that Alan has produced all those Garth Brooks records and, of course, a ton of Crystal Gale records and Don Williams and so many others. But this yeah. is obviously when you guys were still 
you know, kids and you had not, neither one of you had become professional songwriters in the Nashville system yet. Um, talk about your approach to songwriting in those early pre Nashville days. In other words, was it kind of a, a disciplined approach back in, in those early days or did you just kind of come up with songs when they hit you? Well, you know, it, it was kind of disciplined, but not on purpose. We loved it so much. We just did it. You know, mm-hmm. we, yeah. we, we wrote a lot. In fact, uh, you know, when, when uh, Alan got, got out of uh, Southwestern, he was actually, you know, we, I had this little band, you know, almost throughout my college career. And, and when, uh, when Alan got out of uh, Southwestern, he, was, he actually worked at the bank. And I had, I had a, they gave me a little office down at Sun Records, and we, we just had our own. We had a little publishing company, and a couple of guys uh, backed it. Uh, Gene Lucchese and, and Paul Bomarito, they were a couple of big Italian guys. They, they actually got Sam the Sham going. And, uh-huh, uh, yeah. so, so we worked with them, and, and Alan would work at the bank, and I'd, I'd call him and give him reports all day. But, you know, almost every night we would write songs. Yeah, uh, yeah. And... Uh, we we just loved it and and it was just a dream you know yeah. we just we we i think we we both saw ourselves as making it in the in the in the business you know sure and, yeah. Uh, yeah we we didn't have a clue you know how hard it was and, right <laughs> and it's a lot harder today i guarantee you right. you know right. and uh but we just we we just loved it yeah. and you know we wrote a lot of stuff and uh i remember uh, when when I was on Sun, that's where we got to know Jack Clement really well. Who mm. we, you know, our whole life was kind of caught up with his. And right. I remember mm. when when I first started really trying to write, and I said, I said Jack, I said you think you think I could ever write a hit song? He said, Sure you could. You don't have to be that sharp to write a hit song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks for the compliment. <laughs> the compliment, but. Uh, so those those were just great days they and they were learning days and and you know we were we were around a lot of musicians and Memphis was just a big melting pot i mean you right. know guys of musicians that just did everything yeah well um you know we see Jack Clement's name pop up again in 1960 you recorded a couple sides that were released by Dot Records and one of them was written by Jack Life in a Teenage World and then there was Why Don't You Write Me both of those songs were recorded at Sun Studios but not the famous location at 706 Union Avenue by that point Sam Phillips had moved to kind of an updated modern facility on Madison Avenue from your right. perspective what was the difference between recording at the original location versus the newer facility well, you know, back then, of course, when he moved into the new place, I thought that was fantastic because mm. it, it was a beautiful building. They right. had, you know, much more modern equipment and everything. So I thought, well, man, this is a lot cooler than Sun. Of course, right. I, I look back, I didn't realize, I didn't realize what a history uh, that that studio was going to have. You right. know, right? Of uh, I didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time. Yeah. But right. uh, uh, the the new studio, I mean, you know, it was it was state of the art for its time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it was just right around the corner from the old studio. You, you look back historically and you think, oh man, all those Jerry Lee Lewis records and Elvis records and Johnny Cash and all that stuff that was cut in that little tiny studio and all that oh, history and that and that magic. But I'm sure when that had just happened only a couple of years before, it was easy to go, oh, this is a huge upgrade. We're getting more. Yeah. It's more technologically <laughs> advanced. And <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. yeah I funny. thought that the new place was really cool. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I'll never care about going to the old place again. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, young people are like raccoons. They just like really shiny things. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> right. 
And it was shiny, boy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked about Cowboy Jack Clement, and, and he was a very important figure in your career development. And, and for those who, who are listening who might not know, um, Jack was the guy who, who really discovered Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, he wrote hits for Johnny Cash, like Ballad of a Teenage Queen, and guess things happen that way. And uh, so many accomplishments we could mention working, you know, with everyone from Charlie Pride to, to U2. He's a, a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and also the, the Country Music Hall of Fame. One of those guys that uh, kind of a behind the scenes guy, but a legend in the music world. Um, and in the early 1960s, he moved to Beaumont, Texas to build a recording studio there. And I understand that you and, and Alan Reynolds went along with him to, to help him out. And, and I'm curious, you know, with Memphis being such a, a musical hotbed and, and Nashville being another major music capital just three hours up the road, um, what prompted you guys to go all the way to Beaumont? Well, you know, when, uh, when Jack, uh, we, we'd, we'd gotten really close with Jack. And uh, he, you know, when he Sam fired him one time. You know, I think he fired him two or three times. But... Uh, <laughs> He fired him, and he went. He went to Nashville. And he was actually working for uh, for Chet Atkins, and right. uh, he was screening his songs and things. And uh, he met a guy by the name of Bill Hall uh, from Beaumont, Texas, who later became my manager, my my publisher. And uh, but anyway, they got together, and uh, he lived in Beaumont, and and uh, they started talking. They kind of hit it off and decided to build a studio down there. Wow. And then when they built a studio uh they jack's jack got a hold of alan and me and and said hey i'm going to beaumont texas and he said why don't you guys come down there with me you know we'll make a bunch of records and just have a lot of fun and all this stuff so you know eventually we did and we went down there and and, uh alan and me were down there probably for about oh two two and a half years yeah well you know one of the the most famous people to ever come out of beaumont texas of course is george jones um, right. who had a major number one hit for six weeks in 1962 with your song, She Thinks I Still Care. Just because I asked a friend about her Just because I spoke her name somewhere Just because I rang her number by mistake today aware of any other major artists recording your songs up to that point that was the first song i got hit by a wow. i got uh recorded by uh, a real artist Jeez. really <laughs> not not a bad first yeah. hit <laughs> no i know i know <laughs> man that's amazing so he had basically jack had basically just pitched it to to george then yeah uh-huh yeah. and uh he he pitched it to him and and you know I wasn't I was really into country music but I I really wasn't a big George Jones fan at the time and, and George hadn't been around that long actually yeah, yeah still kind of new were, were you a bigger George Jones fan after you got your first checks for this? <laughs> <laughs> much bigger <laughs> yeah. and and I'm then I well I really got into George Jones then and I really came to appreciate him probably one yeah. of the greatest country voices that for ever sure came. yeah. You know, sometimes She Thinks I Still Care shows the writer credits with only your name, and then other times I've seen it list both you and Steve Duffy. Steve Duffy was a buddy of mine in Memphis, and I, I was I was writing the song, and uh, he was over, I can't even remember, I, was, I think it was in my house, and he was over there one day, and I was just playing around, and, and uh, 
he gave me a line, and I used it. And he gave me this. It was called. Uh, uh, well, he he came up with the line just because I haunt the same old places. I had I was trying to fill in the blanks. I had I was pretty close to finishing the song, yeah. and uh, and he came up with another line uh, which I which I didn't didn't want to use. And in the last line, he wanted to call it uh, just because I wander aimlessly without her, which mm. I thought you know that doesn't no surprise there or anything. But then I. <laughs> My line was just because I saw her and went all to pieces. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we put the song out, and, and you know, our names as writers, and I, I gave him half the song, and I, I didn't even think anything about it. You know, I, was, I hadn't been writing that much, and I hadn't had anything recorded, so, you know, he was there, and he came up with a line, and I, I said, you know, well, we'll just, we wrote this song together, you know. Right. And uh, once the song, after after the George Jones record had, had uh, done its due, uh, he called me one day, and uh and of course we both thought well, you know that's the end of that song you know that was that was great while it yeah. lasted and uh he called me and said hey would you like to buy buy my half of the song and i said what do you mean he said well i just thought you know maybe you know i don't write songs all the time and everything maybe maybe you just like to buy it and i said well how much do you want for it and I, he said uh thirty five hundred dollars and i said oh man i said <laughs> I'm not gonna give you thirty five hundred dollars for that song. Where where am I gonna get that kind of money? You know, and all right. and all this stuff. So so anyway, uh, we just kind of let it go. And and uh, I was I was talking to Bill Hall right after that, and and uh, Bill was a real wheeler dealer anyway, mm. and uh, he was a good guy, but he he loved to get you on a deal. And I I told Bill what had happened. He said, call him back and offer him twenty five. I said. <laughs> I'm not going to offer him 25. <laughs> no, that's as bad as 35. And he said, right. "No, he said, call him back. You'll get your money back." Yeah. So, yeah. reluctantly, I called him back and I said, "I said I'll buy back for 25." So he said, "Okay, deal." So, what? so I did, and uh, it's the greatest investment I ever made in my uh, life. I would say so. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, yeah, that's uh... yeah, and it just keeps on going. And, wow. That Garth did it last year. He did it in his DVD package, right. and I got paid on a million records last year uh, for Garth's cut. And yeah. it, it gets cut. Somebody does it every year. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Wow. Well, not only did you have your first big hit as a songwriter in 1962 with She Thinks I Still Care, but you also had your first hit as an artist with Patches, which was a top 10 pop and R&B hit on Smash Records. Um, right. Now, you were an artist who, who wrote his own material, but that song was written by Larry Colbert and, and Barry Mann. So I'm curious, right. how'd you decide to cut that one? Well, let me tell you, that was, that was when Jack was working for Chet, and he heard the song, and uh, he, he didn't give it to Chet. He was, he was still, you know, we were, we were in communication with, Alan and me were in communication with him, and he, you know, he wanted to do some stuff still with both of us, but he thought that'd be a a really great song for Alan and he played it for Alan and Alan didn't like it. <laughs> so uh, then he played it for me and I loved it. Yeah. So he said, well, we'll record it. So that was, uh, you know, we, we recorded it in Beaumont, Texas oh, wow. and, uh, you know, it became a hit. And, and what was really funny, uh, after the song was released, uh, smash picked it up. Right. And, uh, nothing happened. That record was out for, Oh, maybe, at least six weeks before anything really happened, and and they were the ra the radio stations wouldn't play it because they said it was a double suicide song, you know, right? And they didn't want to play that stuff, and <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, I always thought it was cool. To me, it was just a Romeo and Juliet right. in song, you know? Yeah, right. yeah. 
And Bill Hall kept kept bugging this one guy in Beaumont, and finally got him to play it. And and when he played it, it just it just took off. And then from the reaction it got in Beaumont, which was a pretty small old town, uh, Houston jumped on it, and then it just took off in Houston. And then it just kind of started going from town to town, you know. Yeah. Wow. Snowball. Each night I cry as I think of that chatty and pretty patches there watching the door. She doesn't know that I can't come to see her. Patches must think that I love her no more. Well, I mean, you guys were doing your best to make Beaumont, Texas the next uh, music capital of the world. Just and uh, Oh, yeah, you know, John... Uh, Johnny and Edgar Winter were down there when we oh, were down wow. there. We would we would do some demo sessions together. Wow. And, uh, Bobby Blue Bland was down there. I mean, right. that town they had some fantastic talent, both mm. both uh, singers and, and uh, professional football players. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, you you as the artist followed up Patches with another hit single. I saw Linda yesterday, which was a top twenty pop and R and B hit. Just when I thought I was really And this time, you and Alan Reynolds were the writers. Talk about how you guys came up with that one. Well, you know that was that was really funny because you know we were writing together, and we were we were writing a ballad called "I Saw Her Yesterday," mm. and we were trying to write another song for George Jones. And okay. uh, about that time, it dawned on us, and they were they were pushing us. They said we need to get some material for you for your, your follow up to mm. Patches. And somehow we started playing around with that song, and and you know, I, after patches and all the stuff I went through with it, uh, I thought, man, I do not want to do another ballad right now. I, wanna, <laughs> I would love to have a uh, love to have an up tempo pop hit for yeah. good. Right. So uh, somehow we got the idea. We we took that song I saw her yesterday and changed it to I saw Linda yesterday, and and really picked up the tempo and just started playing around with it, and then, and that's that's what we came up with. So that was wow. my that was my next wow. record. Yeah. Well, now, the B-side of I Saw Linda Yesterday uh, was The Girl I Can't Forget, um, which is credited to you and Alan and and Steve Duffy and Milton Addington. And I'm very curious about Milton Addington, who you also collaborated with uh, on the R&B hit The Dodo by Jumpin' Gene Simmons in 1964. (laughs) Golly, I forgot about that one. And and also your top 20 pop hit, uh, Laurie, Strange Things Happen in 1965, was another one with Addington. He was a psychology professor at at the uh, Memphis State, which is the University of Memphis today. Uh-huh. And and the three of us, we, we did a lot of time, spent a lot of time writing together, Mitt and uh, Alan and myself. And uh, So he was you know, already he was, a, psych, a psychology professor at that point? Oh, yeah, he was. Wow. He was, And he was older than we were. Yeah. And uh, we he, he had a Ph.D. Uh, wow. at the time, you know, and, and we always kid around. We thought, boy, Mitt would give that PhD up for one VMI award. <laughs> right. He was he was a great guy, and and his wife, you know, she really didn't she she kind of looked down on his songwriting, you know. Right. She was kind of prim and proper, hmm. wife of a professor at a university, and uh, anyway, but he he loved he loved to 
to write. And yeah, uh, yeah we did that song. And then and then we were the way Laurie came about. Uh, wonder what it would be like to have a ghost story on a record. And huh. uh, <laughs> so we just started we started talking about it, and and then we just kind of forgot it. About two or three weeks later, Mid comes back with Laurie, right. and uh, he had. He he knew some uh, girl. I, th- I don't know if she was a college girl, uh, but he met her and, and she she had this idea and she had she introduced him to a song. Uh, it was an old it was an old bluegrass song called "Taking Mary Home" and it was mm. basically that same story. It was a PD song, and uh, so they they came up came up with Laurie and and he played it he played it for Alan and me and, and uh, thought well, that's it's pretty weird. It was you know it's kind of <laughs> The hair stand up on your neck, you yeah, know. Right. But anyway, we we I learned it and we played around with it and uh, uh, went up to Nashville and and got some musicians to play around with it a little bit. So we decided uh, I was I was going in to do an album and we decided, look, let's let's record the song. You know, if 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 uh, if it comes off pretty good, the worst thing we can have is an album cut. Mm, and uh, yeah. so we 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 recorded it doing the album and. And everybody thought, "Wow, man, that that thing is strong." And uh, so we ended up uh, releasing it. You know, and it was a it was a big record for me. Yeah. Are y'all? Well, you're you're you know Norbert Putnam. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That, that was the first hit record he played on in that. Oh wow! Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, another one of my weird records. Right. <laughs> well, kind of you know, fast forwarding us a little bit. You know, by the the mid 1960s, you were you were back in Memphis. You had gone through deals with Sun Records and, and Smash and 20th Century Fox at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And then you even went to the, the Atco label for a while where you uh, did some singles under your own name and did some stuff with, with Alan Reynolds under the name The Jones Boys. Um, right. Now, I know that you guys released a, a single called Impressions, which was another song that you uh, wrote with, with Mitt Eddington, which fell just shy of the Billboard Hot 100. But, you know, uh-huh. that was that was kind of it for you in terms of the the pop artist part of your career. And, and from that point, we see this shift over to the to the country field. You moved to, to Nashville uh, at the right. end of 1969. Uh, what prompted you to, to, to make that change to relocate to Nashville? Well, you know, uh, Alan and I both kept kept thinking about going up there because we thought a lot of things were happening up there, and and you know, Memphis at the time uh, it was it was a little bit strange. There was a lot of success that came out of came out of out of Memphis studios, but they were all independent of each other, and they were all kind of like they were all kind of against each other. You know, mm, like interesting. Like one guy had his set of musicians, and he said, "Okay, if you play for this guy's studio over here, you're not playing any more sessions for me." Wow. And it was. It was kind of kind of a weird thing. So Alan right. and I, we were the we were the first two guys to leave Memphis, and you know later a bunch of them came up. You know Reggie Young, Bobby Wood, and, mm-hmm. uh, all those guys, and uh, it, it just uh, it just got started with Alan and me going up there because we thought you know we were thinking about writing a lot too, and, and we thought I think we, we could do better writing you know up in Nashville, yeah. and. Uh, so we eventually got up there, and I'll, I'll tell you what though it's it's let me let me preface this with Jack before before we thought about going to Nashville, Jack started talking to us because he'd you know he'd gone back up there after the Beaumont days, mm, right? And uh, he was he was trying to uh, get us to come up there and, and write for him, and, okay. and we thought at first, no, nah, we're not going to do it, but but he finally he finally talked us into it, and and we thought, well, you know, it's it'll. We'll probably have a, a greater opportunity there, and 
You know, he got us to Beaumont. He got us to Nashville. He's, I think Jack was Moses in another life. <laughs> <laughs> Leading you but through anyway, the wilderness <laughs> of the music business. <laughs> yeah, we got, up, we got up there and started writing. And, uh, and I wrote this song with Paul Kraft. Uh, we wrote a song called Charlie, uh, My Whole World. And uh, we played it for uh, I played it for Danny Davis at RCA, and he he signed me because mm. I didn't I was not thinking about recording then at mm. the time. Right. I just wanted to really write, but play this song for him. Uh, we'd cut it and uh, in Jack's studio in Nashville, and uh, so Danny he signed me. So I go over there and we put it out, and it it, it didn't really do much. It was it was a pop record. You right, know, that, right. that was definitely my, the end of my pop career. And I talked to I talked to Chet after that, and I I asked him if he would. And you know, I'd already I'd, I'd grown up on country, and I love country. And that's one reason I like being in Nashville. Right. And I asked him if he would let me try to record some country stuff. Right. And he said, Yeah, go. You know, let's give it a try. So, so we did, and uh, I had a bunch of country hits. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to talk to you about that signing with RCA. You know, you, you signed with RCA in '71. Had a top uh-huh. ten country hit with a cover of Delaney Bramlett's Never Ending Song of Love. In yeah. fact, uh, most of your country singles, including the number one hit Rocky from '75 and the top five nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine tears, those were not written by you. I, did, I, did, I was too smart. I finally figured out I was too smart to record my own songs. <laughs> I tried. I tried to find better songs. Well, that's what I was going to ask. You know, why? Why record so many other people's songs? Well, you know what? It, it was. Uh... I didn't. I didn't have this thing about I've got to record my own songs. I, I had some songs, but I would. I would hear songs that I just thought, boy, I really like this. I would mm. like them better than songs from me that I'd written. Well, and at the same time, you were having success with other people's songs as an artist. You were also hitting the charts uh, as a writer. And Anne Murray's version of He Thinks I Still Care went to number one in 1974. Um, right. And then there was Dave and Sugar's version of The Door Is Always Open, which went to number one in 1976 and, and earned you Grammy and CMA nominations for Country Song of the Year. Um, mm-hmm. my, my favorite version of that song is actually Waylon Jennings. Yes, the door is always open And the light's on in the hall Yeah, and I love the record. In fact, you know, Jamie Johnson recorded it after after that. Yeah. And, uh, he he got his he he heard the song off of Waylon's album. Right, uh, okay. right. Yeah, but Dave and Sugar that was their I think that was their first number one record. Right. Uh, I'm not positive about that, but yeah. Well, what's the, they what's, were pretty new. And, what, uh, what's the story on that song? Tell us about writing that one. Uh, just. Bob McDill and I wrote that song, and uh, I don't even, you know, I don't remember what what got us started on it, or there's, there's really there's really no story to tell on that song because I don't remember. We were just, you know, we did a lot of writing together, sure. yeah. and uh, and Bob McDill, uh, he, you know, he he came, he lived in Beaumont. When we went down there, Alan and I met Bob, and when we moved back, we we talked Bob into moving back to Memphis, and then we talked him also into moving to Nashville. Oh wow. <laughs> just thought he was a great writer talent, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but Turned we, you we right. wrote a lot of stuff together. But I don't have a real story for that <laughs> song. Yeah. I wish I did. Yeah. <laughs> I should make something up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's your chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, the hits just kept coming. Uh, Charlie Pride had a number one hit with "I'll Be Leaving Alone" in 1977. 
I wrote that with Waylon Holyfield, oh, yeah. and uh, I remember we were we were riding one night out at my house, and and uh, I remember we had a we had a jug of Matus wine, and we were, we were writing that song, <laughs> and we were trying to finish it. And we were down to about one or two lines, and I remember, and we were both just wiped out. And I remember we were sitting across the table from each other, and Waylon all of a sudden he said, "Dick, he said I got it, man, I got it." So I said, "Okay, what is it?" So he. He puts his he's, he's got his head down on the table and all of a sudden I hear <laughs> 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 But anyway, uh we we uh we we got it to Jack. Jack played the song for Charlie. Charlie really liked it and uh Charlie said he was gonna do it and he and he did he did record it and uh and RCA did not want that to be a single. They hmm. they said that's not a number one record. Uh and I'm a, I remember Rosine, Charlie's wife, said to me, "said Don't you worry, baby. It's going to be a no. It's going to be a single." Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, all the suits said it was not going to be, but uh, Charlie was pretty hot at the time anyway. And and uh, I remember getting a telephone call about seven o'clock one morning. And it was uh, Charlie was singing the song to me. He said, "My next single, pal." Nice. So <laughs> I thought uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the early 1980s, you had some number one hits on artists who were already successful but would go on to become icons. Uh, Reba McIntyre had uh, You're the First Time I've Thought About Leaving, and, yeah. and George Strait did uh, Let's Fall to Pieces Together. Let's fall to pieces together Why should we both fall? Um, now that's a song that you co-wrote with the legendary Johnny Russell. Talk about uh, Johnny a little bit and, and what kind of songwriter he was. Oh, he was he was a good songwriter, uh, and we were we were best of friends. Mm, yeah, and and so we just uh, there was another writer on that song too, Tommy Rocco. Okay. And I remember right. that uh, we were all three together, and and uh, Johnny said he said let's let's just write a really down home country song. Let's write something for George Strait. And I, <laughs> and I and I said, uh, I said, pardon me, you left your tears on the jukebox. I, I don't know where that came. <laughs> wow, right. But, uh, but then we we got into it, you know, and and uh, got the song done. And uh, I don't even remember how who who, who pitched it to George, but uh, but he did it. Had a number one record with it. And, right, uh, right, yeah. Turned well, out good. Yeah. So for our generation, um, probably there was no more popular. TV show when we were kids than the Dukes of Hazard on Friday nights. And, you know, John Schneider, who, who played Bo Duke actually had a top 10 hit, um, had several top 10 hits as, as an artist, including several number ones. Um, but one of those was, I've been around enough to know from, from 1984, which you wrote with, with Bob McDill. Now mm -hmm. I, I understand that that song had been recorded previously by Joel Sonnier in, in 1975 and, and Conway Twitty in 1978, but it had not been a hit before the John Schneider version. And you know, there's, there's those songs that 
that people write and they they get out there and they think maybe they should be hits and and they're not. Um, this yeah. is one of those this is one of those cases where it it got its first chance, it got its second chance, and then on on the third chance, it really did kind of connect. But um, I'm curious if there are songs from your catalog that maybe never did become hits, but are songs that you really felt like they should have, maybe some personal favorites that are like more of the, the deep cuts from your catalog. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got quite a few songs that I think are smashes that, you know, that I, you know, just for some reason or I couldn't get them cut. Uh, people didn't hear them. But, you know, uh, as far as uh, I've been around enough to know, and John Snyder came in the office one day looking for stuff. Uh, I wasn't there. And, He's he's in there. They're playing songs for him, and uh, he doesn't hear anything. And he finally he finally says, "Would you play me something that you you think is a hit song, but you don't think it would be for me?" <laughs> so, well. whatever reason, a guy who was running the company at the time, Bob Curse, he, he played. Uh, I've been around enough to know, and he said, "God, I love that." And uh, so, uh, to make a long story short, you know, he recorded it, and 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 the deal was he was on Warner Brothers. And what they did, they they sent all the promo copies out to disc jockeys, and in place of the name, artist's name, they had a question mark. Interesting. And so they started, uh, you know, people started picking up on it and loving it, and uh, they were playing the record before they even knew who it was. Wow. And uh, so, you know, that was that was that was kind of really wild because <laughs> right. they were thinking if they'd seen his name, they may have never, never even listened to the Jeez. record. Right. Right. Well, you just kept having hits. I mean, through the 80s and then into the 90s, uh, you had the number one with Doug Stone in 1991, and then Tracy Bird's recording of Keeper of the Stars went to number two in Billboard in 1995, and it was number yeah. one in some of the other trades. I keep my hand to the Keeper of the Stars. He sure knew what he was doing. won ACM Song of the Year for that one. I'd love to know the story behind that song. Well, that song, uh, that was, uh, I had a couple of writers on that too. Danny Mayo, who, who passed away a few years ago, and a girl uh, named Karen Staley. Uh, Danny Danny came to me and he had the title. He had, he had Keeper of the Stars and I thought, man, that's, that's a great title. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was, I was just playing around with it and uh and it was kind of like it was kind of like that song with Russell and I wrote. I just came out with that one line before anything. But but when Danny gave me this title, I, I said it was no accident me finding you. So so we went we went from there on it, and uh, and we were we were took us a little while to get it done, and we were we were having some problems with the bridge. So he called uh, Karen Slady one day, and she came over, and and she had a great idea on the bridge. So she helped us finish it, and then. Uh, uh, Tracy did it, and and it was really funny. The record, it was in an album, and Tracy had had this album had been out for I don't know maybe a year or so. They'd had they'd had about three singles out of the album, and 
nothing really great had happened. And Tracy was singing uh, singing this song on the road, and he said people were going crazy. Yeah. So he was telling them at MCA, he said, man, this has got to be a single. People are loving this thing. And they said, no, no, that's not a single. That's not a single. So <laughs> he goes through this, and finally I think they finally, okay, we're going to release it. It, it was the I think it was the fifth single out of his album, and it went double platinum. You know, and the, wow. the song was released as a single. Yeah. Can, can we maybe have a you know like a, a theme to this uh, interview that maybe artists know sometimes what their singles should be better than their label knows? <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, I think the artists know better than the label knows every time. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Much. yeah. You know, because yeah. uh, you know if you you just you just feel something and they're they're not doing all the marketing and trying to figure out right. this and that either they just they like it or they don't like it and most yeah, of these right. songs i mean if if uh if they didn't if they didn't like them they wouldn't record them in the first place <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think i think on the other side of that you know you do have a few artists i think that get a little greedy and they they try to record everything they ever write right and, uh, <laughs> right, right. and i mean that doesn't usually doesn't pan out but right. but when somebody's just loving a song and uh and and i did too i, I love that song too mm. Uh, and and I thought, boy, I, I wish they would release it. I just think it'd be a smash for them. Yeah, you're and, right. Uh, and it was. You mentioned a couple times being in writing sessions and just kind of almost blurting out the first line of the song, just for, you know, out of the blue. Um, <laughs> typically, um, when you sit down to write, are are you somebody who who generally starts with a title or kind of waits for inspiration? What what's kind of your your process in that day to day you know approach to writing? the nail on the head when uh i've got a, i've really got to have a title i mean those two mm. lines i blurted out you know I, the, the, I didn't even have titles in it was just i just got inspired i just heard i heard a title yeah. and uh on one of them and just sent that line but yeah i usually i have to have a title because uh you know if i if i just start something without a title i usually write myself into a corner i just it just, <laughs> it just kind of gives me a point to to go from yeah yeah. As a songwriter, one of the cool things is, you know, you, you write a song in one afternoon or, or one day, or sometimes they take a little longer, but then they last forever. And, and you talk about, you know, every year somebody is cutting, she thinks I still care. Um, and I want to ask you about a song um, called Memphis Beat that was originally recorded by Jerry Lee Lewis. up recently as the theme song of a, of a TV show called Memphis Beat with Keb Moe singing a version of that. Another example of just how a song is out there and, and, and it keeps cropping up. Um, tell us how, how Jerry Lee originally cut that thing and, and how it managed to reappear all these years later, uh, you know, recently as a, as a TV theme. Well, you know, that's one thing that's so great about this business. Like we, Alan and I, and, and Mitt, Mitt Addington, we wrote this song uh back in the 60s back in the in the uh around the mid 60s and we just pitched it to jerry lee and he liked it and he recorded it and he uh put it in his album and named in fact he named his band the memphis beat (laughs) and uh you know that was it you know he 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 had that one record and that was done and never 
I forgot about the song. Never heard anything else about it until a few years back. I started getting statements, uh, BMI statements on Memphis Beat. And right. I'm thinking, what's going on here, you know? <laughs> and I, I ran it down and found out. That's when I found out they had uh, done the, uh, the, the, sh- the TV show, the cop show. Right. And it was called Memphis Beat. And we never even, and, and Kev Moe uh, uh, had the theme. That was a theme song for the show. And and the show was it was uh, I don't know, did you ever see it? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I thought it was. I wasn't sure it was going to make it, but I thought it it had a it had a great uh, just just the, the plot and all. It was kind of a it was just kind of a almost a cult type show. Yeah, it had a lot yeah. of southern music in it and right. all. Little little and, bit uh, left to center. And, uh, Jason Lee was a star of that and did a great yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it lasted a couple of years, but uh, it was you know it, it just shows you. You know what happens, and we never even found out how. I, I haven't asked. I, I didn't think to ask Keb. I, I just met him after that, and because we got yeah. a we got a film award for that song, but uh, I don't know how they got it. I just figured, you know, they went into the archives and you come up with a song that's the same title as your TV show. Right. Yeah. So, but the the greatest thing that came out of that <clears throat> this this within this last year, we just found out that uh, they had a contest in Memphis for the the 100 top songs ever written about Memphis. Right. And uh, Memphis Beat was number one. Wow. And I thought, oh, cool. <laughs> God, I can't believe it. You know, when you got songs like Chuck Berry's Memphis and <laughs> right, right. The Time I Get to Memphis and right. Trisha Yearwood had a Memphis song, and I thought, right. man, that just, that was, that, that was one of the neatest things that ever happened, I, as far as I'm concerned. Cool, when you, sure. Your hometown, you know, you yeah. pick your song, it's the number one favorite song about yeah. Memphis. So I thought cool. that was pretty cool. Well, you know, from from Memphis to Beaumont, Texas to Nashville, I mean, it's a pretty impressive uh, and wide ranging career as an as an artist and a writer that you have had, and, and it's just really cool to see uh, somebody who writes great songs and and seeing those great songs keep cropping up year after year and, and continuing to to live on. Um, it's it's just an honor for us to uh, to chat with you today, and so we sure thank you for taking the time to to talk with us, and uh, and thank you for all the great music over the years. Well, guys, it was my pleasure, and I, I really appreciate. It. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. It was. Uh... A lot of fun, Scott and Paul. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. 